So tonight we are entering back into the book of Ephesians, which we left off back in late November, just before Advent began. So the book of Ephesians is a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to the churches in Western Asia Minor and uh, about 2,000 years ago. This letter written to a bunch of small communities throughout a very pagan world who had encountered Jesus through the gospel, through this preaching of the word, and had found their lives to be changed and drawn together in community. And so Paul was writing to encourage them. When we left off in November, we left off at the end of chapter 3, and we were in a series entitled The Brave New World to, to really emphasize the fact that the book of Ephesians is about the new world that God is making, that we all deeply want a different world than the world that we have. We long for a better world. And that what Paul's making in this, in this letter is an audacious claim that the early Christians made, which was that God was literally making the world new through Jesus. And that we had a part to play in that as well. Now, moving into the next several weeks, we're going to pick up in chapter 4, uh, which is noted, the transition here is noted by the word therefore, which I'll come back to in a moment in chapter 4, verse 1. If you want to open up to Ephesians 4, that might be helpful. And we're going to call this part of the series on Ephesians um, Practice Resurrection. Practice Resurrection. So I'm stealing this from Eugene Peterson's book on Ephesians, which he titles Practice Resurrection, but he stole it from the poet Wendell Berry from a poem that he wrote um, where he gave this idea of practicing or practice resurrection. And the reason this is helpful in terms of thinking about the next section of Ephesians is because Ephesians, uh, I should say that in the scriptures, we don't really ever get a kind of hard and fast distinction between doctrine over here or what we believe and then actions over here. They're always mixing with one another. And Paul's not sitting out to write a systematic theology or anything like that and sort of se segment parts off. But the book of Ephesians gives us perhaps the best place or the most clear place in any biblical book where these two things are held in balance. And so chapters 1 through 3, this brave new world that God is making, chapters 4 through 6, then this transition point, how are we going to live as the people who have been invited into this new world by God? How are we supposed to live? And so Paul deals with the way in which we're called to live in community, in our family or house, home, and workplace, and then also, more broadly, in the world around us. So he really covers all the different contexts that we could imagine. From here, now at the beginning of chapter 4, through the end of chapter 6. Now, why should we care? Well, whether you're a Christian here tonight or not, we all really do care about the question, how am I supposed to live? What is it that's supposed to shape my life? What kinds of decisions, goals, attitudes, behaviors... Are, am I going to adopt in the world in which I find myself? We've all got to have an answer to that question. And our answers are shaped by lots of different things. So we've got to, we've got to wrestle with that question wherever we are. How am I going to inter interact with other people? What are my, uh, what, what are, what's going to define the relationships that I have with my neighbors, for example, or my um, coworkers, et cetera, et cetera? So here's what I want to do. So that's the question that forms the backdrop to practicing or practice resurrection. Ephesians 4 through 6. Do three quick things tonight. First, in, in with this question in the background, we'll see that the way that Christians answer this question of how am I to live 
is shaped deeply by what we think about God, what we believe about God, and about what God is doing in the world and what God is leading the world to. And all of this is then signified by that word, therefore, in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, and we'll get to that in just a second. Second, because of the centrality and the magnitude of all that God has done in our lives, personally, really in the world, cosmically, but also on a very personal level in our lives, the life of the Christian and how we answer this question of how are we to live is to be one of a fitting response. Uh, that is, it's to match in some ways all of this great thing, this great work that God has done in the world. And this is signified by the word in verse 1 of worthy. Worthy. Walk in a manner worthy. So we'll get to that in a moment as well. And then third, uh, the, the response, our response to what God has done occurs not as individuals. And this is a huge theme, really, for the rest of Ephesians. And it already is a, has been a theme in the fall. But it, it occurs as a community. As a group of people. And so, therefore, perhaps it's not surprising, although it is some ways surprising... That the first thing out of the gates here in chapter 4 that Paul urges us toward is to maintain unity in that new community. So therefore, worthily and maintain unity. That's what we're going to look at tonight together. So first, therefore, verse 1 of chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that word, therefore, signifies everything that's come before in chapters 1 through 3. And I want to say this at this point. If you're here tonight and you're thinking about the Christian faith or you're looking at it sympathetically maybe or maybe not, maybe antagonistically, but in any case, you're looking at the Christian faith. And that's to say this, that it's a really easy thing to try, or it's, an, it's a big temptation in some ways, to look at the Christian faith and particularly to look at Jesus and say, it, say, about it, say, say this about it. You know, it just, it calls people to live a pretty wonderful ethic. You know, love thy neighbor as thyself. Or do to others as you would have them do to you. There's all these beautiful little nuggets of practical teaching for how we're supposed to live. And so I think what I want to do is just take on the teaching, these, these ethical um, constructs, this, this universe that's created, these these commands that are given, and I, I, I think it's admirable, and I want to take it on and begin to live it in my life. I want to pursue this in my life. I'm not so sure about all this stuff about Jesus becoming God or about Jesus being raised from the dead, you know, I, or the cross or all those things, but what I really like is, is these kind of nuggets. And, and I would say simply this, that there's a, there's a reason for the therefore in chapter 4, verse 1. And it's to say this, that that we actually cannot live this way of life that's painted for us throughout the next three chapters of Ephesians. This way of life that's painted for us throughout the Gospels, the kingdom of God, this radical upside down kind of kingdom, which has love at its very center. Without acknowledging and recognizing that everything in terms of being able to live that life finds its basis and foundation and fuel and motivation and and ultimately, this is a really important word, power in the first three chapters of this book or in this great narrative and story about God making a world, sending his son who dies on a cross 
and is raised on the third day. In other words, we we can't separate those two things from one another and find ourselves able to live the kind of life. And we'll see that again and again over the next several weeks as we look at this. Just how critical it is that we hear the therefore and we recognize it all begins with God and God's initiative and what God has done and what God is doing. Now, if you're new with us this spring, I would encourage you to go back, perhaps if you'd like to, and listen to some of the messages from last fall, which you can get on our website and our sermon archive, as a way of catching up a little bit with some of those important things. We obviously can't review all of that as we, as we launch into chapter four. But if you missed that earlier series, I'd encourage you to go back. Just want to say three things about the therefore and what it points back to. First, it says that we're in Christ. Chapter one, this is a place of blessing. This is a place of new identity. This is a place of adoption into the family of God. That we've been brought into this place with a new, a very new identity with the spirit of God working in us and the power of God at work in us. That in this new identity that we're a new united one humanity. This was chapter two. The, The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is broken down in the flesh of Jesus at the cross so that we can come now to be one new family. So that's kind of who we are. That's super fast. Go back and read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Um, How did we get here? This is also part of the therefore. There isn't a person who claims to follow Jesus who didn't get to that place in the same way, which is simply through the favor, the blessing, the mercy, what we call the grace of God, this unmerited favor and gift that God has given to us. Ephesians 2 paints this picture really well. But it's so important that we remember this as we come into Ephesians 4 through 6. You were dead, Paul says. When we looked at that, we realized, you know, dead people can't rescue themselves. They can't get out of that situation on their own. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made you alive together with Christ. God raised you from the dead. And brought you into a new place with a new status, a new identity, a new humanity. Now alive. No longer enslaved to sin and rebellion and all the things that that brings. So we all got here in the same way. That's part, a big part of the therefore. And all of that now comes to bear on this next part. So this is the second part about worthily. That whole story informs the way we answer the question of how we are to live. But before we get to the specifics about maintaining unity, the third point, the second point is simply to say, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling with which we've been called. God calls, God initiates, God speaks, God acts, God moves, God creates, God recreates, God sends his son. God does all of these things. And then we respond. We walk. Paul says, walk worthily. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. God moves first. And then we respond. The word for worthy is the Greek word axios. Which gives us this metaphor, a picture of a set of scales, more old-fashioned kind of scales, with a cross beam and a point at the tip that's kind of, that's floating there. And in the ancient world, the way that you would determine 
you know, that you weren't getting cheated in the marketplace if you went to buy grain is they'd put up these weights that they had set up on the one side of the scale, say one kilogram. I don't know if they had kilograms back then. Um, I don't know why I just used kilograms and not pounds, but I did. Um, 2.2 pounds. And on the other side, they'd put the grain. And when the scale came into balance, they knew they had the same amount on one side as the other. This amount of grain was worthy of the purchaser's purchase price. It was made worthy of what, of, what, of what he was actually paying for. Did anybody go to the parade this last Tuesday? I think it was Tuesday, yeah. Um, I, I almost made it. I was on my way to have lunch with someone in, that's here in the community tonight. And I was about, I, I walked the parade route, but I was about five minutes ahead of the duck boats. So I basically just got a view of all the people. But this is another way of illustrating the concept of being worthy. The Patriots won the Super Bowl. And that may or may not make you happy, and that's okay. It made most people in New England happy. And so the parade that was celebrated in the city on Tuesday wasn't just a few kind of little, you know, a few people kind of gathering out, but there were thousands of people. I was blown away with how many people were lining this gigantic long section of street, decked out in their Patriots jerseys. And then after lunch, I kind of saw the aftermath of the parade and all the confetti on the ground, and everything else. This was a parade that was worthy of what had just been accomplished. It measured, it, it equaled the accomplishment in some ways. We get that kind of concept of worthy. And so what Paul is saying is that the Christian life that we're called to live is to be worthy of the calling with which we were called. Not only is it deeply shaped by all of these things that God has done, these beautiful things, but now it's, it's, an, it's to live up to or to be a proper response to. It's to bring into balance by our response all of the great wonder, mercy, and grace and love of God. Which, in, which is another way of saying that for those of us who identify as Christians and who call Jesus Lord, our aim in life, and the reason, our aim, our ambition, our heart, our desire, which is not, and I should say very carefully, is not flowing from a dry sense of duty over the fact that I have to kind of follow somebody else's way, but it's, it's really literally flowing out of a heart that's alive in joy because of the way that God has poured into me. But my aim now becomes to live a life that's worthy of this great work of God that's been done in the world in Jesus, that's literally changed my life. That's ripped me out of all the worthless ways that I could spend my time that the world says are so important. That saved me from all of the futile ways of, of pursuing and spending the energy that I have. The heartache that comes. That's brought me into this place and given me an identity in Jesus. A place of blessing. It's given me a family. Now the call in my life is to live in a way that's worthy of that. That's balanced with that. And that just means practically speaking. And I don't know if, if you think about this in your own life tonight. How you would think about whether or not you think that you're walking in a way worthy. Now clearly none of us are really walking in a manner that's worthy of God. We all fall short. We're all works in progress. And so what I'm saying is not so much about the finished product, because none of us are finished products. Thanks be to God that he'll be faithful to complete the good work that he has begun in us to the day of Christ Jesus. 
But what I'm talking about here mostly is this, is this aim or direction or ambition of our lives. To live for him. And the question, I, the practical question that I want to put to you on this point is, are you holding anything back? Is there any part of your life that you're saying, you know, this is a part for me that I'm going to hold on to? My relationship, the, my relationships, my career goals, a need that I have. Like, this is a part, God, that you're not going to get into this one. I'm going to hold this back. And I would say that we, to, to walk worthily of this calling that God has put upon our lives, it means that we literally say, you know what? I was dead, Ephesians 2. You made me alive. And everything that I have is yours, Lord. Now mold me, make me, shape me, direct me, lead me in whatever way that you want to do. Of course, God made you with desires and he made you with with unique personalities and gifts. And he's not going to work against those things. It's not that we have to be afraid of walking worthily. It's actually that walking worthily is going to form us and make us into the most beautiful us that we can be individually and together. And so Paul's urging these churches and this 2,000 years ago, these minority groups in these big cities and places that were probably very hostile to what they believed. It's, I want you to walk worthily. I want you to respond to this grace properly, to bring it into balance. And then perhaps surprisingly, he then goes on to urge them to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, verse 3. And he says he, he, he urges them to, do, to practice these four kinds of virtues with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Perhaps it's odd for us to think walking worthily, responding rightly to this amazing gift of God, first means living in harmony with one another. Paul's going to go on, and we'll look at this next week, but he first deals with unity, then he's going to deal with diversity, and then It's unity in diversity for the sake of maturity, as he'll go on to say by verse 16, that we would grow up to full maturity in Jesus. That would be part of becoming, of walking worthily. But it begins on this note of unity. Now, note real quick these virtues that Paul endorses for us as followers of Jesus. Humility. Meekness or gentleness. Patience. And forbearing love. My guess is when you pick up the newspaper, most of you don't pick it up anymore, when you look at Google News, that you won't see these four things deeply endorsed. You'll find traces of them, absolutely. And you'll find examples of them. And you'll find people living in the world who embody them beautifully. But these aren't the virtues that bring the goods, so to speak, in the world in which we live. We're called to to humility, to thinking little of ourselves, because we know how amazing God is, and we know from where we've come. Paul can assume this from chapter 2. We know we didn't get here because of anything great about us. We know also just how much we wrestle and struggle and strive to live in any way close to worthy of the God who loved us so much. 
our own sin, our own ongoing wrestling with the idols that we make in our hearts and with our selfish uh, inclinations keeps us in this place of humility, of lowliness, of poverty of spirit. And so Paul encourages that. He encourages meekness. This idea that I know so deeply that God is for me. How, How could anyone living in Christ who's been changed like this not know that God is for us? Now, we doubt that all the time, but that's at the heart of our faith. God is for us. And because God is so deeply for me, and because nothing is going to to wedge his being for me from me, that's always going to be true, then I don't have to spend my life being for me in any real... I don't have to fight for me. That's meekness. But I can defer. I can trust. I can be gentle with others and their needs and their requests and their goals and their ambitions and not have to force my own way because I know that God's going to work for me. That's meekness. Patience. When I've been wronged, especially. When something you've done really deeply hurts me. Instead of just getting impatient and exploding in anger and dividing and breaking and pushing away forever. I stay, I stay present. And bearing with one another in love, these kinds of things ultimately facilitate real relationship and enable us to be one. They enable us to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says be eager in this effort. That's not to be passive, but it's to take the initiative to do it right now, to make every effort to keep this community together. Now why is this so critical? It's because God's purposes at work that we've learned about in chapters 1 through 3 are to unite all things, to reconcile and unite all things in Jesus. And us, we the church, those who've been found in Christ, we are actually to represent this purpose of God to the world. And the question is, how could we represent God's great purposes of uniting all things in Jesus if we're a broken mess? Our unity in the church, our togetherness in this community at Church of the Cross is meant to be a sign to the world of God's ultimate and universal purposes for his creation. It's to display his wisdom to the universe around us. Tom Wright in his huge book on Paul says that the the unity of the church is load-bearing. If this gives way, everything comes down. pictures to the world what God is actually doing in Jesus. And Paul says in verses 4 through 6 that the grounds for this unity that he's endorsing and encouraging so deeply are the fact that there is only one God. There's only one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We're called to be one because we're brought into the one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's not a different God for the Catholic Church or for the Orthodox Church or for the Protestant Church. There's one. And we should pray for God to be working to bring down the divisions that we have inherited in the church in our day. So this is a radical call to answer this question of how am I to live 
by the story of all that God is doing in the world and to let that story shape us, to let that story have us relinquish every last bit of control over to the Lord to walk worthily of him. And then to have that story remind us that we're called to be a community, a team that's knit together in love. If you were a Seahawks fan, last Sunday was hard for you. Obviously, in a devastating way. I was interested to see that, I guess, I don't know much about the Seahawks, but Marshawn Lynch, their running back, that everybody said should have gotten the ball in the last play of the game. And if you, if you don't know what happened, maybe ask somebody afterwards. Um, a reporter asked him after the game, so, you know, were you, weren't you really surprised that you didn't get the ball? And apparently his response was just, No. And the reporter asked, why? And he said, because football is a team sport. Which is a really powerful statement. In a moment when he could have griped and complained and gone on his own to be a kind of individual. He said, no, no, it's a team sport. Well, following Jesus is a team sport. That requires that kind of level of commitment to the team. And to the unity that we've been called to in Jesus. In a foreshadowing of next week, we need each other to grow. It's not just that this reflects God's purposes to the world, this unity that we've been called to, enabled by humility, meekness, patience, and forbearing love. But it's that actually I need you and you need me. I need the part of God that we can only see through you. And you need that part that you can only see through me and each other to come together to produce a maturity and a worthy response. Amen.